Welcome to the Coming Clean Podcast with your host, Peter O. For over 25 years, entrepreneur, speaker, and CEO Peter O. Estevez has built businesses all over the world, and today he shares his experiences, failures, and successes along the side of some of the most sought-after thought leaders to help you pave your way to success. Please welcome to the show your host, Peter O. Estevez. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Coming Clean Podcast. This is your host, Peter O. Estevez. New episode, new guest, and none other than Mr. John Asaroff. John, thank you for having us in your home. Thank you for being in my home. It's great to meet you. What an incredible place and what an incredible view. John, you're a fascinating individual. The secret, multiple companies, a billion-dollar company, a transformational guru. How did it all start? <laughs> uh, you and I earlier were talking about turning our mess into our message, but cleaning it up first, right? Absolutely. So we, we talked about that before. I was really fortunate in a, a couple of ways. Number one, I grew up in a loving family. And even though my parents didn't have much, my father was a cab driver. My mother worked at a local department store as a seamstress. We had a sense of family in the sense that somebody cared for us. So even though money was something that didn't you know, happened well in our family. My father was a gambler. My father uh, spent more money than he made. He didn't understand investing, didn't understand making money, uh, but understood hard work. And so he put into all of his children, his three children, my brother and sister and I, ethic, work, hard work ethic. He didn't work smart, but he worked hard. And unfortunately for me, or maybe fortunately in retrospect, when I was six years old, my family moved from Israel, where I was born, to Montreal because Montreal had the French and English speaking language and both my parents spoke French. But for me as a six-year-old kid who was going into grade one, I had to learn French and English. Wow. And I was just learning how to you know, write Hebrew. I spoke Hebrew and I found it very, very, very hard being in a class with 60 other kids who were mostly immigrants that spoke different languages and a group of kids spoke English and the rest of us were misfits. And so I started getting into trouble at a very young age, especially when I fell behind in all of the fundamentals of math and English and, uh, and things like that. And by the time I was 12, 13, I was already involved in a small little street gang that did breaking and entries, shoplifting. Wait, 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 wait. John Asaroff is small? Yeah, I was in a small little street gang with about eight of us that uh, were misfits, that none of us were doing well in school. So we skipped school a lot. We went to stores to steal stuff. We went into people's homes to steal stuff. We went to companies, you know, on the weekends and the evenings to steal stuff. I was getting into a lot of trouble. Uh, principal's office, detention offices, police stations, over and over and over again for four or five years. And uh, I knew that it was wrong. I knew that it was not um, moral. I knew that it was not the right thing to do. But, John, let me let me yeah. let, let me ask you to pause for a second because that's very interesting. I knew that it was wrong, and I knew that it was not moral. Yeah. How did you know that? Because I grew up in a family with you know with with some morals and knowing right from wrong. I knew that what I was doing was wrong, um, but I had a need. 
to fit in and belong that was greater than that. I had a need to do something right, you know, and get some kind of uh, praise from, you know, somebody. Uh, because I certainly wasn't getting it at school. And then when I was coming home and my grades reflected how poorly I was doing in school, um, I was reprimanded. My father uh, didn't talk to me. My father beat the shit out of me. Uh, And that was his way of loving me into submission to stop doing what I was doing. And my mother, both my parents, my mother went to uh, grade three. My father went to grade five. And then they went out into the world to provide. Children raising children. Children raising children. And my mother screamed and slapped, you know, and threw things at us because that was what she believed. And my father beat the hell out of me when I was a kid because that's what he believed was necessary to get me in line. And it just made me more defiant and sneakier and smarter. And um, as I was getting older, the risks that I was taking we're getting much, much bigger. And there was a point in my life where I knew that I was at a crossroads, that I was either going to die or I was going to go to jail. You had a brother and a sister. Yeah. Where were they at in this time period? Great. And at the time, my brother was traveling the world as a tennis pro. He was, he was on the pro circuit. So he was a golden child, for he lack was, of a better word. He was the first child, okay. um, and he had, you know, he had his path. He wanted to be a tennis coach okay. and a tennis pro, which he made it into the pro leagues. And he's at sixty-eight today. He's still tennis coaching. Wow, incredible! He still, so he, he he was eight years older than you. So he was nine able, years older, not nine years older yeah. than you. So he was able to overcome a lot, a lot of the challenges yeah. that you were facing. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and uh, he actually grew up though in Morocco and Israel. Right, so he had a sense of family and Community, school, structure. consistency, structure. Mm-hmm. He fit in. He belonged. He had friends, and then all of my aunts, uncles, and their kids were all part of a community. Sure. And when I went to Montreal, you know, we were all trying to learn the language. We were all trying to go to school, and um, and even though you know my sister, you know, did a lot of raising because my parents were working, so I'd come home from school. My sister was there, you know, until my parents came home later. She adopted on. the mother role. She adopted the mother role. And so I knew that, you know, I knew that what I was doing was wrong. Uh, I knew that it was getting riskier. And then I left school grade 11, and I started working in a shipping department. Making- so you dropped out of school? No, I graduated grade 11. Okay, you graduated grade 11. Yeah, and, and even that has a story because I cheated to get out of grade 11. I had a friend of mine, interestingly enough, you know, 30 years later, uh, found me because of the work that I do. I had a chance to thank him because on the final test, of grade 11, he gave me 50 answers to the multiple choice questions so that I could have the right answers for math and English and everything else. That was the test. And I ended up, you know, graduating high school because a friend of mine helped me with the final test. I would not have passed. It, it is almost incredulous for me to believe that John Asaroff, yeah. the man behind the secret, yeah. the entrepreneur that has built multiple companies, yeah. million and billion dollar companies, the man that gets into the mind, understands the mind, and, and, and studies the mind yeah. better than most had to cheat to get out of high school. Yeah, it was, um, that's what I believed. That's what my self-image dictated. That's what my well, skills you know, were at the time. Was that poor self-esteem or, or was that a lack yeah. of understanding of what you were going through? 
Well, I was young. You know, I was 12 years old, 10 years old, 14 years old, 9 years old. I didn't know that me not understanding the English language and not being able to get the the teaching that I need to give me self-confidence and certainty in myself uh, and to be able to upgrade my skills at the same rate that the other kids were going at, I felt less than. I didn't feel like I was smart enough. And then I started to behave in alignment with what I felt, what I thought. And so it makes total sense to me now in my modeling years and experiential years, I didn't have the model to follow that I could emulate I didn't have the parents' skills to teach me what I needed to teach me in the arena of self-worth, self-esteem, learning English, learning math, learning the alphabet. John, every single one of us goes through a different phase of our lives. And I often say that, that every phase of our lives requires a different us. Yeah. You had reinvented yourself multiple times through, throughout your lifetime, 19 years old. Yeah. That one was a pivotal one. First pivotal point. So uh, I'm working at a meaningless job, making a buck sixty-five an hour. It is March 1980, to put the exact dates on it. Why is that date so significant? What, what do you remember dates? Because I noticed that you remember your, the, the day you got your real estate exam. Your, well, yeah, the dates have a significance because in March, my brother was living in Toronto. He had come back from his tennis tour. And he knew that I was getting in trouble because my parents and my sisters were calling him. You got to do something to help your brother. He is getting in trouble. He's, he's breaking the law. He's going to end up in jail. His, one of his friends died. He's going to die. So my parents were, were scared for me. And rightfully so. And, you know, I was drinking too much, doing drugs, uh, higher than a kite, coming home, driving drunk, driving high. You know, my life was, was a mess and, and I, it was picking up speed. <laughs> And so I knew, you know, my parents and, and I even knew, you know, the train that I was on and I knew the direction that I was heading and it wasn't good. And so my brother calls me up and says, hey, bro, why don't you come to Toronto? Take the train. I'll pay for the train. It was like 19 bucks yeah. from Montreal to Toronto. I want to introduce you to this man. And this man is a philanthropist. He's an entrepreneur. He's in real estate. And uh, maybe he can help you. And so I said, sure, I'll come and see you. So I took the train on a Friday morning. You know, it's a five and a half hour train ride. My brother picks me up at the air, at the uh, train station. We go meet this man. His name is Alan Brown for lunch. And he's very cordial, very, very soft spoken. And he asked me, like, why are you doing these things that your brother's telling me you're doing? And I said, I don't know. I just want to make some money and I want to, you know, have a good life. He goes, well, why don't you use your mind to have a great life? I said, well, I'm not smart. I mean, I just, I didn't do well. well in- excuse me to interrupt. Yeah. Why did you believe you were not small? Because I had all the evidence that I wasn't. Um, I was taught that if I didn't go to college, then I really couldn't fit into a, a job. I'd be, you know, my father didn't have an education. He was a cab driver. He was a, he, he didn't, he, he made back then $25,000 was a great year for him. You know, $500 in a day meant he worked 15, 18 hours a day in a cab you know, making his, his cab money and tips. And so I associated because I was taught that if I didn't do well in school, which I didn't do well in high school, didn't do well in grade school, that I wouldn't amount to much. John, is that true still today? Is it? No. Well, a lot of people believe that's still true today, but there's so much evidence that that is not true. A school is great for some people and terrible for others. 
But I believe that. So I believe that, you know, education in school determined how smart you are. Back then, there wasn't such a thing as emotional intelligence. There wasn't, it was IQ. It was, how well did you learn? How well did you memorize? They don't even teach you how to learn in school. They teach you how to memorize in school so you can pass the test. You either had it or didn't have it. You have it, you had it or didn't have it. So I had enough kids in my classroom, you know, they were getting, you know, 80s, 90s, hundreds on their tests, and I was getting like 40s and 50s. Society was validating your failures. Society was validating my failures, and the environment that I was in was validating my failures. Because even when I went home, and my parents would look in my report card, then I'd get spanked, I'd get beaten, Mm -hmm. I'd get, you know, stuff removed from me. So... The reward system back then was based on how well you did in school, right? It wasn't how well I did in sports, which I was very good at. It was how well I did in school. Sports was like, you know, that's, that's kind of like an extracurricular sure, activity. that's a hobby. That's, yeah, a that's hobby. almost like being an artist, right? right? You're, you're good at that, but no, you need to be good at this to succeed in life. Let's go back to Mr. Brown. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. interested in this story. Yeah. So um, Mr. Brown had uh, seven or eight real estate offices, seven or 800 real estate agents. And at lunch, you know, he asked me, you know, what were my goals after we got through the chit chat? He asked me, what were my goals? And I said, well, I'd like to buy a car. <laughs> I'd like to move out of my parents' house. I'd like to get a better job. Those are my three goals. because Those are the things that were bothering me. And he said, well, that's all great. But what are some of your bigger goals? I said, I never thought about any bigger goals. He says, well, I'd like you to fill out this document. And he reached into his briefcase, okay, and he takes his document. And on the document that he gave me, it said the 1980 Goal Setting Guide. I'm looking at this. Open up to page one. It says, at what age do you want to retire? I'm 19. Like, <laughs> retire. I want a job. Forget about retire. Yeah. My father's not retired. Right. Second question. How much net worth do you want to have when you retire? So I looked at Mr. Brown. And I said, what does net worth mean? True story. <laughs> he explained to me. Third question, uh, describe the lifestyle you would like to live. Fourth question, what kind of charitable contributions do you want to make? What kind of fun do you want to have? What kind of experiences do you want to have? Where would you like to travel? What kind of clothes do you want? So I just, I just wrote down 15, 20 minutes worth of imagination. Sure. I give the document back to Mr. Brown. And he starts to read. He goes, this is, these are some pretty ambitious goals. He said, I'm going to ask you one question. And the answer to this question will determine whether you achieve and have every one of these things. So, Peter, in the back of my mind, I could feel it like it was yesterday. I'm thinking, yeah, sure. One question is going to determine whether I have all those things. <laughs> Fire away, Mr. Brown. Yeah. And uh, he asked me a question. He says, um, are you interested in achieving these things and having these things and being able to give these things? Or are you committed? I'm sitting there going, well, I didn't know what the difference was. I said to him, I said, what's the difference? And he said to me, he said, son, he said, if you're interested, you'll do what's easy and convenient. If you're interested, you will keep telling yourself the stories of your past and how you didn't do well in school and your father's a cab driver, your mother's a seamstress and that you're in a small gang and you're doing all these illegal things and you'll keep reinforcing those patterns. If you're interested, you'll keep reinforcing the beliefs that you're not good enough, not smart enough and not worthy. If you're interested, you'll keep repeating the habits that are causing the same results over and over and over again. He said, but if you're committed, you will do whatever it takes to let go 
of your past, your traumas, your stories, your excuses, your reasons. If you're committed, you will develop the beliefs required to achieve those goals. If you're committed, you'll upgrade your knowledge, your skills, and your habits. Because every one of those goals is achievable. So which is it going to be? Are you going to be interested or are you going to be committed? And so I, I was feeling a little on edge. I was like, oh man, this guy's putting me on, on the fire here. So I don't know why I said this, Peter. I said, well, uh, I guess I'm committed. And he reaches out his hand. And he goes, in that case, I will be your mentor. How did you feel at that moment, John? Do you remember? I remember because I asked him, wow, that's great. What's a mentor? I had no idea what a mentor is. And he explained to me, a mentor is somebody who will help you chart a path to what you want to achieve. A mentor is somebody who will share with you the knowledge you need, the skills you need, the habits you need. A mentor is somebody who will show you and provide you a place to find the resources that are readily available. A mentor is somebody who will share with you what to do, but also will share with you what not to do and why, because they have the experience. I'm like, wow, awesome. And so he said, great, now that you've accepted my mentorship and I'm accepting you as you know, my student, I need you to move from Montreal to Toronto. Wow. It's 500 miles away. Right there in a brief meeting that you just right met there. him for the very first time. And you know what the first thing out of my mouth is? I can't move to Toronto. I don't have a car. I don't have a job. I don't have any money. I have $60 in the bank. He goes, well, let me teach you lesson number one. I said, sure, what? He says, first you make the decision, then you figure out how. That's how you use your brain better because you are so used to living in your stories and excuses, you will never achieve anything with that mindset. I go, I understand, but, but I don't have a job. Here. I don't have, he says, there you go again. You keep using your stories and excuses. I said, fine, uh, I'll move to Toronto. And I did that after several minutes of him pushing me. He goes, and second thing I need you to do. I said, what now? He says to me, I want you to enroll in real estate school. It starts on May the 20th. This is April 1980. He says it starts May the 20th is the next class. I have several other students that are going into it. And I need you to register for the class. It's 500 bucks. I go, 500 bucks? First and foremost, I hate school. Failed math. I failed in. He says, look how fast you default to excuses and stories and reasons that you believe are true. I said, Mr. Brown, I have my report cards from school to show you I failed math and I failed English. And I'm telling you, I cheated to get out of high school. I'm not that smart when it comes to book stuff. He goes, listen, son, we have to end this right now and right here. Either you're going to be committed or you're not. So I said, I only have $60 in my account. He says, I get all that. But first you make the decision and then you figure out how. I said, fine, I'll move to Toronto. I'll enroll in this freaking real estate school and I'll find the money. And my brother says, well, I'll lend you a hundred bucks. Went back home. My mother and father lent me some money. My sister lent me some money. So I borrowed from three people, mother, father, sister, and brother, four people. And I got the 500 bucks, moved to Toronto, took the real estate course on May the 20th, 1980. And I'm sorry, it was May 5th, 1980, excuse me. And on June 20th, 1980, I actually had that I was a real estate agent. I got my certificate. You were 20 years old? 19, 20. You asked me earlier, why do I remember these dates so yes. well? Because that was the pivotal first pivot in my life. First, I made commitments to do something I didn't believe I could do. For the audience, John, what was the most important decision you made that day when you met Mr. Brown? What was the, the, the one most important decision? Well, 
first was daring to dream on that piece of paper when I had no knowledge, skills, contacts, resources, or anything to make any of it real. What's the significance of that daring to dream in that moment? The significance of putting that thought to paper. What did that open up for you? Well, I didn't know this then. To sure. me, to me, it might as well have been a book, you know, a fictional book, you know, it's a fairy tale. I yeah, but there's know. a lot of people out there that still believe that that possibility is still a fictional book. Yeah, I, I agree. What I didn't realize then that I now know because I've done the, you know, now, you know, I'm considered a, a pretty good behavioral neuroscience researcher of understanding what's going on. What I didn't know then is You're I actually... Modest, John. <laughs> <laughs> what I didn't know then was I activated through my imagination... I activated the reward center of my brain, which is connected to the behavioral center of my brain, which is connected to the hope center of your brain, which is connected to the motor cortex of your brain, all the different circuits. And that was the spark of hope. Spark of hope. Not knowledge and skills, spark of hope. Then with Mr. Brown saying he'll mentor me, that activated a little bit of confidence and certainty that maybe it's possible. I don't know. He knows. I don't know. So I had to transfer my belief into his knowledge, which gave me a little bit of confidence and certainty. Maybe there's hope for me. So that was the spark. So you borrow his possibility. I borrowed his possibility and his wisdom and his success to lend to myself because now I'm going to be you know, somehow he's going to guide me and tell me and sure. show me. So I don't know how. He so does. You're no longer alone in the journey. No longer alone in the journey. And now I have somebody who obviously sees something in me that he's willing to invest in me. You know, so I um, made the commitment to, to do it. And June 20th, I passed the test that I studied for every day. Even though I wanted to quit every day for five weeks, it was hard. And Mr. Brown wouldn't let me and he wouldn't let me, not by saying, I'm not letting you quit. He said, if you quit, what do you think that's going to do to your self-image of yourself? Oh, God, it can't get much worse. Oh, yeah, it can. If you quit, will you trust yourself to complete anything ever again? Wow. If you quit, what character are you bringing forth? If you stick it, you know, stick to it, what character do you think you are developing? Self-worth, self-esteem, confidence, certainty, self-image. Isn't this the character required to achieve every goal you said you want to achieve? Right. So he showed me the short and long-term ramifications of my choices. One group was going to reinforce something I was detesting in myself and found despicable in my personality and character. Wow. The other was aspirational. I want to be a man of character of loving, caring, kind, intelligent, giving, smart, capable, confident, certain. Those are the characters I wanted. I had none of those, but that's what I wanted. So he made it easier, not easy. He made it easier to show me that there's this razor's edge between my old identity, stories, reasons, excuses, traumas, and all the evidence I had and results and a different path. Explain that to me. Razor's edge. A complete detachment immediate. The razor's process. edge is it's very, very easy for us humans to do what's safe, to do what's familiar, 
to do what we've done in the past, because at least we know that. So it's easier to master what we know. And even if we have to master disappointment, that's wow. easy. Wow. And what it takes to change is being willing to first manage and then master change. So you either master disappointment or you master change. Right. So he showed me first how to be aware of the choices that I always had, this or that. And then he made it safe for me to choose this by tying my vision and my goals and the character and the identity and how I would feel if I did this versus how I would feel if I continued this. So he created some wonderful contrast frames for me. I just said, yeah, okay, it's hard, but okay, one more day. I'm curious. I... What was happening to you on the daily basis? Was there any notable changes that you felt, even in your behavior, John? Was there anything? What kept you going, right? Because it's a lot easier. You said it a minute ago. Most people stay in the comfort zone, not because yeah. it's comfortable, but because it's known. It's convenient. It's, it's convenient. It's, 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 it's safe. It requires no effort. It's safe. It's safe. It's the muscles already built up. Yeah. Why tear down, right? Yeah. There's um, no more disappointment in disappointment. Very, very challenging, Right to stick on that path. And I wanted to quit every day, multiple times a day. Like I, I wanted to quit. I resisted it. I, I felt fearful. I felt that I was going to embarrass myself. I felt like I was going to be ashamed. I felt like I was going to let myself down again. I felt I was going to let him down, my brother down, my parents. I just moved. Why did that matter to you at that moment? Because I really cared what other people thought. Really? <laughs> I did. My, yeah, my self-identity was so low that if you thought low of me too, that would just confirm what my biggest fear about myself is. I'm worthless. In your process of escaping yourself with drugs and alcohol and vandalism and whatever it was that you were doing, did you disconnect that association of worrying about what others thought about you? Yeah. So it was easier to escape than to realize. Easier to escape, easier to hide, easier to escape, easier not to ask the hard questions, easier to not be radical, honest, easier to blame their, him, her, they, the system, the man, you know, the school, the teachers, my parents. It was much easier. In a way, and this is not in a negative connotation because I come from a very similar behavior, but we start becoming our parents, right? We start modeling the same behaviors, right? We become like one or both of them or exactly polar opposite. So not a lot of people know. My, my father lived a bit of a checkered past when he was younger. And he did things that I knew about that were illegal when he was in his teens and early 20s. Okay. And I heard the stories, right? And even when I was a teen, in some of the things that we did, not the drugs, but the vandalism, he participated so you know, the I, what I was, the behavior was being reinforced by my father figure. Who else to come to these questions better than the behavioral scientist that understands <laughs> it so well and that we can break it down for the audience and how those patterns, behaviors, but how easy they can be reversed. So take us on the journey again. Yeah. Please. So, so listen, Mr. Brown took me under his wing, got my real estate license. And then, you know, I had to be in the office every day. He offered me a job on commission only selling real estate. So not a nickel of salary, right? Not a nickel. 
not even a draw. There were no draws back then. Back then, it was you eat what you kill. Right. <laughs> so you're just like, you're, yeah, you're it was just a, in an office now. It's like, you're not now I went from, you know, having money on the streets to no money in an office with a, you know, with a suit. Begging for money and, with a suit. And, uh, and so he put this sheet of paper in front of me. And the manager of the office, Joe, put a piece of paper in front of me every day. And the first, there was 100 boxes on that piece of paper. And box number one had $15 on it. Box two, 30, then 45, 60, 75, 90, 105, 120. I can go all the way to 1500 because I used to look at it every day. And he said, okay, here's the game of real estate. You're in sales now, he says. I go, okay, great. Um, what do I do? He says, see the phone over there? See the book over here with streets and people's names and phone numbers? They used to have books back sure, then. Sure. And he says, okay, so your goal every day is you're going to make 100 phone calls. And you're going to take a street behind us, behind the real estate office here, and you're going to call one by one by one by one by one. And here's a script that you're going to have to rehearse and remember. And so the script, which was on a piece of paper, I had to record it in my voice on a cassette tape. And then all day I had to listen to it and then call people. And the script was this. Hi, this is John Asraf with Allen Brown Real Estate Company. We have somebody who's looking to buy a home in the neighborhood. Have you considered making a move? If they said yes, I said, great. Can my broker, Alan Brown, and I come over today at 3 o'clock or would 5 o'clock be better for us to be able to see the house so we can explain it to our buyers? If they said no or not, I'd say, thank you. Oh, by the way, have any of the neighbors talked about making a move? If they said yes, I'd say, awesome. Can you please share their name with me so I can give them a call? If they said no, I said, oh, thank you. Oh, by the way, do you know when you might be considering making a move so that we can have it in our folders here at the office and we can stay in touch. So I learned a script. Isn't it amazing that after 40 years? 40 years. I just recited the script. <laughs> yes, yes. So I learned a script, and then I just started calling. And everybody that I spoke to, if they said no or yes, I just X'd off $15, $30, $45. And this was a way to motivate me that I was on my way to making 1500 As opposed to, oh, somebody else hung up on me or somebody else said no. It was a positive reinforcement because they knew, people who sold real estate knew, about on average of one to a hundred calls, you get a couple good leads. And one of those should turn into a sale. And sometimes you call one person and they go, yeah, we're interested. And other times you call 150 people and you still would get a no. But it was the law of averages with some skill of what to say, with some closing techniques of getting an appointment that led to year one, June 1980 to June. Uh, there goes another day. June 1980, the year after, I made $31,000 for me, and Mr. Brown made $31,000 for teaching me. A year into the business. A year into my business, I made $62,000. 31 for him, 31 for me. My father made $25,000 that year as a cab driver. 40 years ago. 40 years ago. So I'm like, holy shit, maybe I am smart enough. Maybe I can learn. Maybe I can do this. So that was year one. And then Mr. Brown, you know, I got an award, you know, for back then 25 grand was, was good. It was $62,000 in, in gross commissions. And then in year two, Mr. Brown says, okay, now you're ready for the next level of what you're going to do. Year one, he basically shared with me, you know, I'm going to cold call to practice, get good at practicing and being good on the phones. Year two, he said, okay, so instead of calling randomly people who may or may not want to sell their home, there are people who have tried to sell their home with a real estate agent or 
um, their listings have expired and it hasn't sold and they're trying to sell their home privately for sale by owner. He said, there's a new script for that. So I learned that new script verbatim by recording it, listening to it, reading it, and practicing it with another guy in my office by the name of Dave. And in year two, I made 151000 bucks. Wow. 5X my year before. Wow. So now he taught me strategy. Now, instead of randomly calling, call people who already want to sure. sell their home. Direct target. And you have to have the right script again because we already understand the psychology. What was that doing? Forget the commissions. Yeah. Forget the money. What was that doing to John Astro? Oh, I thought I was the shit. I thought I was the shit. Here I am. I've got, you know, nice clothes. I have money in the bank. I could take my friends out. I can visit my parents. I can help them. I could travel a bit. And I was like, oh my God, like, you know, this is amazing. And then after year two, I had saved $72,000 and I went and traveled around the world for 14 months by myself. Wow. I quit real estate uh-huh. and I went and traveled around the world. I want to hear about that. Yeah. What happened during that trip? Something had to happen. What yeah. changed, John? So up until, you know, 17, 18 years young, I thought it was a dog eat dog world. I thought, you know, I lie, steal, and try and take advantage of you, and you lie, steal, cheat, and try to take advantage of me, and that was the game. Isn't that the game for a lot of people out there, though? It still is, yeah. And when I traveled around the world, people just wanted to love me, help me, give to me, show me, nurture me, and I was like, oh my God. I want to interrupt you for a second. Did the people change or the job change? The people were just the way they really were. I got to see what the world was really like. And where I lived early in my, you know, in my youth, right, my childhood and my youth, a lot of people were struggling. You know, a lot of people were, you know, I lived in an immigrant neighborhood where, where people were just a product of that. Yeah, I just became yeah. a product of that mm-hmm. ecosystem. You know, my family didn't have anybody that went to college. We had nobody that had a business. Nobody was successful financially. There was no models of that. The only model I saw that when I was younger was at the local YMCA. Yeah. Right? And I used to work there giving out keys and balls and hockey sticks and stuff. And I saw successful people there, but that wasn't our family. They were not from the community. They, they were, were not. There. They yeah. were not yeah. part of my ecosystem. Right. So I became a product of the ecosystem, and then that ecosystem reinforced me until I broke free from that, and I was introduced to Mr. Brown and some of his friends, and then I went and traveled around the world. Uh, you know, at um, where did you go? I started off in California, where I live now, okay, and spent some time in California. And then I went to the uh, South Pacific: Tonga, Samoa, Fiji, Tahiti, Hawaii, Indonesia, Malaysia, Japan, Hong Kong, uh, the Middle East, and then all of Europe. I didn't go to South America or Antarctica. And so I just, I saw, I just traveled for 14 months and I used the money that I had saved up. And then my sister lent me $17,000 to finish the trip because I ran out of money. I didn't work. I just, I didn't, I didn't spend money in, you know, $200 a night hotels. I spent, you know, $25 a night, $15 a night, uh, hostels. But the people that I met showed me the kindness that is out there. It showed me humanity. Not one thing happened to me that was bad. 
Now, one person tried to take advantage of me. Now, one, it was the exact opposite of just givers, 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 givers. And it just changed my paradigm of the beautiful planet we live on, the people and the cultures. And that was the spark. I mean, that was the spark that changed me. First, Mr. Brown, and then putting me in the environment where I could become more, so I would have more, so I can also give more. But then I went and saw humans in every culture, and it just cracked my heart wide open. And then I became a voracious learner. That was the spark. When I came back, that was the spark for me. Like, uh, uh, I have to see the world. I have to make the biggest, most positive impact that I can on the world and animals and plants and people. And um, I started working really, really, really hard, which led to me being sick. I had severe ulcerative colitis at 23. So I had ulcers in my colon from the stress. It activated an autoimmune disorder called ulcerative colitis. I was taking 25 salazapyrin pills a day, doing a cortisone enema in the morning, cortisone enema at night, going to the hospital every month to have a sigmoidoscopy done, which is a tube in my rectum to see what was going on. And I was precancerous. Wow. And then I saw something on TV around this big fancy word called psychoneuroimmunology, the mind-body connection. And that Repeat was that word again. Psychoneuroimmunology. Psycho- okay. And it's simply that there's a mind-body connection. Again, this is I was 23 at the time, but I had two years, uh, 23 to 25, I had two years of brutal, brutal disease called ulcerative colitis. And um, at around 25, I said, enough is enough. The doctors were talking about removing part of my colon. And I'm like, I'm 25 years young. Like, what do you mean to remove my colon? I said, what's causing this? Like, what's causing this? And by asking the question of what's causing it versus focusing on the effect of it. Sure, sure. I looked at the genetic possibilities of it. I looked at my lifestyle. I looked at my stress. I looked at everything that I could. And um, back when I was 25, I found this affirmation after I realized there's a mind-body connection. I said, okay, let me do a test. And the test was I'm going to eat perfectly. I'm going to exercise every day. I'm going to not drink as much. And I'm going to do this affirmation and visualization thing that was just really starting then. I found this affirmation. The affirmation goes like this. My body and all its organs were created by the infinite intelligence in my subconscious mind. This infinite intelligence created all my bones, tissues, muscles, and organs. And it made me perfectly whole. I give thanks for the creative intelligence that is within me and within every one of my cells healing me and making me whole and perfect again. Wow. I am now perfectly healthy. What happened? Five weeks of doing that every day, reading it, visualizing, running my fingers across it, left hand, right hand, emotionalizing it. Five weeks later, all symptoms were gone. Wow. After two years and all the pills I was taking. I took the pills. I was in Jamaica, threw them into the garbage, Went to my next sigmoidoscopy the following month when I got back to Toronto from this vacation that I took. And Dr. Wu, who was my doctor, said, what have you been doing? You're in total remission. There's no sign of colitis. I said, Dr. Wu, I took care of the cause. He says, awesome, great job. That's unbelievable. It's like a miracle. He said, just keep taking the pills. I said, 
You don't understand. I took care of the cause. The pills treat the symptom. And that was the beginning of me understanding the power. That information gave you that sense of wisdom, that sense of presence, that sense of becoming whole of who you are? That gave me the sense that I have the most powerful biocomputer, this $100 billion brain, that when I focus it on what I want, it follows through. Wow. And when I focus it on what I don't want, it follows through. And it was the beginning of my understanding that I am not my brain. I have a brain to use. I am not my brain. I have a brain to use. I'm not my emotions. I'm not my feelings. I'm not my sensations. I'm not my behaviors. I have or can take those things. That was the first part for me. And I was doing a lot of spiritual reading as well. Not biblical. Spiritual. Spiritual reading of the power within every one of us. The, The infinite intelligence that created everything also created me, which means it is within me. And as you know, we have the ocean, you know, right there. And just like if we, if we took a bucket of ocean water 5,000 miles inland, we'd still have some of the whole. So I realized that I was a spiritual being with this incredible intelligence in every cell and that I had a brain that I could learn how to use better and how to focus it on what I wanted and the solutions and the health and the wealth and the things that I wanted to have, do, be, and become. And in doing that, I would be able to take the equivalent of, you know, sunlight is general energy diffused. Take a magnifying glass, you could burn a piece of paper, magnify the photons from the sun into a single photon, you can cut through steel. It's called a laser. Now, is this the same... The same kid that was 11 gray had to cheat to, to, yeah, to get out of kid. The same kid started to have some awakening, some awareness shifts. And it all started with one man, one question, one answer. Let's talk about another man, Walter Schneider. Ah, Walter. Walter's, uh, Walter's a, a king among us. So, John, first of all, thank you for that. Thank you for that revelation. That is, I understand it. Okay, so it's almost like I am floating in the clouds with John right now, right? I am woke. I am awoken. I am present. I am here. Okay, thank you. I am so mind, body, and spirit, and and I just flow with the rest of the universe. But it's it's difficult to speak like this in certain circles. No, I retweet that. It would have been difficult for me or for you to speak like that to your parents when you were seven, eight years old. They would have think you had been smoking some. Yeah, they had, I mean, they were ignorant. They just didn't know. I mean, they were ignorant. It's It was out of their scope of awareness and understanding, right? And so we tend to ridicule, you know, or, you know, or shy away from that which we don't understand, yeah. right? And so it just wasn't in their consciousness. They didn't understand this. I didn't want to distract you, but I wanted to thank you for that uh, moment because I felt the experience as you were sharing it. Thank you. Walter Schneider. Walter Schneider. So when I had come back from my world tour, I went to work in another real estate office, a Remax real estate office. And Remax basically, uh, instead of you working for the broker, right, and sharing your commission with the broker, 
Remax, you actually rented an office space and you paid an office fee, like a rental for the office space, and you worked for yourself, but under the Remax umbrella. So you were an independent uh, real estate agent, right? So you were self-employed. Right. So you didn't work for somebody else. Now I was self-employed. So now I was responsible for all my advertising, my marketing, my sales, my everything. I was responsible for everything. And there was this young guy, he's about... Uh, you know, let me see, probably about seven, eight years older than, you know, I was in his thirties at the time. And he was actually building the Remax franchise system in all of Eastern Canada. Okay. And he and I just became friends. He was just a beautiful person that was gregarious and fun and, and wanted to help me. And I used to go down to his office and, and I used to ask him questions about success and, and like, why are you building Remax? Why aren't you an agent? Uh, what does it take to build a franchise? How much does it cost? How much money do the brokers make? And I just started getting interested in what he was doing. And he was selling franchises and the franchisees were then getting real estate agents and the real estate agents were then selling real estate. And then everybody made money based on what the real estate agents made. Okay. Right. So for several years, you know, I would just go into his office maybe once or twice a week and he would just sit with me for 30, 40, 50 minutes. Once every three months, we'd go for dinner. We'd go have drinks and dinner. And he became like a big brother to me that started to impart wisdom around me around leverage. So he says, well, if you work as an agent, you can make money. If you take some of that money and you invest in real estate, you can make money. But he said, but you can also be a business owner and then have other people work for you which is leverage, you can scale, which is leverage, then you can invest in other things. So he became my mentor. And in 1986, the end of 1986, I was trying to buy a Remax office and the deals didn't work out, didn't go through. And then um, Walter approaches me this one day, says, hey, listen, the franchising rights for Remax just became available in the state of Indiana. Do you want to partner with me and Frank, which was his partner, and you moved to Indiana, you become the CEO, and then you could do there what we do here. Now, 26. 26. And so I said, fuck yeah. It's exactly what I said. Sorry for swearing, but I said, yes, okay. fuck yeah. <laughs> I want to be partners with you. No idea what it entailed. I didn't even know where Indiana was. I was in Toronto. He said, you want to move? We're going to go to Indiana. I said, I don't care. I would have gone to freaking Alaska. For to be par partners with him yeah. and Frank, these guys were legendary back then, what they were doing in the real estate industry. So um, I said, yes. And he says, great. We'll have the papers drawn up and you could be a, a, you know, a CEO and you can partner with us and we'll teach you what we're doing here. You go do that over there. So in November of 1986, I quit my real estate job, not job, but business, and I moved to Indiana. And I opened up an executive office suite. You know, I had my suit, my glasses. I started selling franchises instead of selling real estate. So I started selling the franchises. And um, that was uh, November, or that was 1987. And uh, over the next number of years, uh, I ended up selling and opening 85 offices. Over the next number of years, we recruited 1,200 salespeople. And um, at our peak, we were doing four and a half billion a year in sales. Wow. Now, I was just copying a blueprint. Cop and paste. Cop and paste. Yeah. So I didn't have to figure out much. I just had to implement. 
So, you know, Mr. Brown gave me the spark of the mindset, right, and razor's edge and the beliefs and the visualization and the meditation and the affirmations that I actually did every single day in Mr. Brown's office. And then I parlayed that into my health. And then Mr. Walter Schneider gave me the opportunity that I said yes to again. Both times, as I'm sitting here talking with you, Peter, you know, um, I said yes to myself. A lot of people think you say yes to the opportunity. No, I said yes to me. I said yes to myself that I'm going to, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to get out of my comfort zone. I'm going to become more. But I also felt like there were those mentors that could at least guide me and take away some of my fear and uncertainty. Were those mentors a lot of attraction? Listen, there are mentors in your life right now. You're just not saying yes to yourself, so they don't seem like you're mentors. So the we're law is saying we're not the one taking the action. We're not executing on, on Yeah. Every resource and tool and mentor that you need, they're here. You just need to be in resonance with that. And when you have the vision, you have the goal, and you are committed, right? Back to Mr. Brown. Then the universe conspires as quickly as possible to make that happen. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that. You know, nature does what she does maximally efficiently on time every time, no exceptions. Wow. Right? And so are you saying yes to you? Are you saying, you know, I'm going to set aside, I'm going to figure out a way to let go of my fears. I'm going to... Um, uh, upgrade my knowledge, I'm going to upgrade my skills, I'm going to modify my identity to match my destiny, I'm going to go create these neural networks that are uh, going to help me achieve my goals versus reinforce the neural networks and patterns that move me away from them, keep me stuck. I'm going to develop the beliefs that I need to believe because we weren't born with any beliefs. We weren't born with a self-image. We weren't born with any fears. We weren't born with any knowledge and skills. And those are the four things that hold us back. All changeable. Absolutely. All changeable. So the first thing you have to do is commit to what it is that you want to achieve and then get on the path. You know, get on the path to progress towards what it is you want to achieve. And you know, often when I when I speak or teach, I ask people, say, can you jog a marathon right now? 26.2 miles, 40 kilometers. And 99% of people say, I can't jog a marathon. I say, great, but if we committed to jogging a marathon 12 months from now, slowly, we committed to it today, and we learned what we needed to eat, we learned the amount of sleep we need, the amount of rest we need, the type of exercise to do to strengthen our cardiovascular system, our muscles, we got the right coaching, the right practice, whether it's a walk today for a minute, could we, if we committed, slowly jog a marathon together a year from now? Sure. And almost every single sure. If I committed and I learned all the pieces Absolutely. I need to, I could. He is committed. He is committed. And so that means that any goal that you cannot achieve right now, if you committed to, you could achieve it. Uh, uh, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Or get very close to it. Uh, absolutely. And here's the beautiful thing, Peter. It's 2021 now. Almost, almost every how-to we know. Absolutely. It's available to all of us. Almost 
every how-to. How do I lose weight and keep it off? Absolutely. How do I age gracefully? How do I have more energy? How do I sleep better? How do I make more money? How do I invest? How do I protect? How do I build a business? We how- have all the have-tos that, how-tos that our parents didn't have and our great-grandparents didn't have. There are 105 billion humans that have walked on planet Earth since the beginning of time. Two million years. There has never been a time where how-to is available on your mobile yeah. phone. Yeah. Ever. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All the mistakes we've made, they're available. available. All the successes available. available. All, all the blueprints. We're, we're, we're all sharing. the blueprints. Yeah. All the blueprints yes. for beginner, intermediate, advanced, pro, hall of fame, all-star, all available. Yeah. That's not the problem. The problem is it's too easy to stay in our comfort zone. Yes. Problem is our brain operates by looking for safety and security first. Avoidance of pain and discomfort second. Conserve energy while it does number two. Well, well, well John, I, I'm going to interrupt you for a second. How can safety and security be found in a state of survival? Well, survival and safety is the hierarchy of how our brain is making its decisions. So we have an ancient brain in a new world. So right? we need to change the brain. Well, and this is where change your brain, change your life comes right. in. This is where... All the work that I do now mm-hmm. is around what are the methodologies or technologies to do that. And let's talk about your work. How did you get into the work and what works do you do today? Sure. So, you know, going back to, you know, when I was 20, 19, I started to change my neural networks and patterns. I didn't know it then. I didn't know that reading affirmations, listening to affirmations, visualizing, emotionalizing, seeing myself achieve the goal, seeing myself releasing the obstacle. I didn't know what I was doing then. But back then, astronauts were training their brains. Navy SEALs were training their brains. Firefighters were training their brains. Police officers were training their brains to overcome obstacles, to develop the confidence, the certainty, the self-image, the self-worth, the self-esteem. They were doing that back then, but it was reserved for people at the highest level of the game that life was on the line if they didn't do it right. So I started, and then Olympic athletes, you know, started to visualize, to mentally rehearse to practice in their mind because practice makes permanent, to visualize because visualization is simulation. We didn't know when we started doing this in the 60s and 70s that we were actually activating certain circuits in our brain and that we were activating neuron connections in the brain. So just like if you go back, you know, to the 70s, Okay, you had the big cellular phones, you know, they were clunky and sure, worth, sure. You know, the, brick. Three to, the brick, yeah. right? Well, now we have little, little mobile phones. Sure. Well, we now know how to get all of that into this and then some. So now we're able to see more into the human brain. We can see that our brain's made up of um, networks, salience, executive, default mode network, like a brain, like a, you know, a computer network around the world that's connected. We know that there are circuits that turn on or off based on uh, cues that are coming in from the outside world. Uh, that we know that there are layers of which information travels into our brain and activates certain circuits. So I've been fascinated with, hey, what happened to me? Like, the stuff that I did, like what actually was happening in my brain, I just, I, I, there was only, there were only two subjects, I, three subjects I loved in school. 
gym, biology, chemistry. I don't know why. I just liked it, but yeah. it didn't do very well in, in them, but I liked them. Gym, biology, and chemistry. Okay. Yeah. So when I started to achieve some success, and then I started to teach it to my real estate agents, and then I started to teach it to other people in my orbit, and they started to achieve results, I was like, holy mackerel, this is great. You did something with new agents where you multiply yourselves. Yeah. We took a group of 75 agents who were committed, committed to increasing their incomes by mastering their mindset. And we started a daily practice of meditation, visualization, affirmations, and mental contrasting, just those four things. And I taught them the process that I had used. And 75 agents over six months of doing this every day increased their sales over what they would normally do, above and beyond what they normally did by $100 million. Wow. Wow. So wow. I knew it was transferable. And so everything that I've done around creating a vision, goals, beliefs, habits, and then all of what I call our inner sizes to support that, all the body of my work now is developing inner sizes to strengthen your mind and your emotional skills so that you have mental regulation, emotional regulation, and habitual regulation wow. where you can direct what you do as you upgrade your knowledge and skills. John, so, where do you go from there? How do you make that leap into Remax, billion-dollar company, and then into becoming among the top world-renowned behavioral scientists? You know, step-by-step. It's following my passion, being insanely curious, being a person who wants to expand their own consciousness and then share, you know, um, my failures, what I learned, my successes, what I discovered, the research that other people are doing that I can take complex stuff and make it simple for people to understand. Uh, and then I've been able to productize so that people could just have it to do as opposed to figure it out on their own. Why not keep that to yourself? Why? It's just a question. Um, goes back to when I traveled around the world. I have had nothing, I mean almost nothing but people sharing and giving and lifting me up as they climb that I want to use my life in a way to make yours a little bit easier, to make anybody who's listening or watching a little bit easier a little distinction, one comment, one aha. Like, I'm going to go back to, you know, May, April 1980. One question, one man, one question, one answer changed my life. Maybe the question somebody's asking themselves right now, maybe I can have that answer for them. Maybe in helping them see how spectacular they really are. Maybe if I can share a little bit of love and kindness with them, and maybe if I can see more in them than they see in themselves, but they trust me to guide them, I can make another human being's life a little better. It's the greatest gift in the world. Absolutely. Greatest gift in the world. Absolutely. You know, I'm in your home. I know a lot about your life. I I follow your career. Uh, I admire, respect you. Thank you. I have tremendous admiration for you. More so today. Thank you, my friend. Um, adversity. Have you faced adversity in, in, <laughs> in, in, 
in 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 this journey to many successes. Of course, I mean that's uh, yeah, it's it's you know because often people believe that that if if we go into this transition of life, right, and 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 we enter the awakeness of the universe, and and we, and we join the universe shoulder to shoulder to 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 be part of it and, and be all of it, right? That life just becomes easy and there's no adversity. No, listen, so, I. So, what has been the most difficult parts in your life, or those most adversarial moments that you had faced? Sure, I mean, there's been so many, um, but specifically, number one, you know, when I was getting into trouble with the law, that was major adversity. Number two, my health. Um, number three, uh, I've been divorced twice, married three times. Finally, in the last 21 years, of you know, I met my soulmate Maria. I've had a massive business failure where. Uh, you know, I lost millions of dollars uh, of my money, investors' money, friendships, uh, reputation, you know, so many adversities, uh, ups and downs, highs and lows. But all of those were the tests. All of those were the opportunities for me to be defined by the failure, the mess, the loss, the, uh, the ego, uh, you know, in the way I, I was, I used to be an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink in 12 years. I used to suppress my emotions, you know, through alcohol. All of those gave me the opportunity, the opportunity to rise above it, to become more than the problems, the trauma, the failures, the, the embarrassment, the feeling of shame, the, the, the rejection. Those could have defined me. But my early mindset training, my razor's edge of awareness of I can choose that or I can choose this. And awareness is what gives us choice and choice is what can set us free. Wow. Awareness is what can give us choice and choice is what can set us free. Wow. Difficult year, John, for many across the world. Yeah. COVID-19 has taken the lives of many. Yeah. Including your own mother. Including my mother. Yeah, May 2nd, 2020, got a call from my sister that my mother had COVID. That morning, I spoke to my mother. She was actually in the gym exercising in her retirement home on the elliptical bike. I'm sorry, on the uh, recumbent bike. And her caregiver was videotaping her talking to me. Several hours later, she was diagnosed with COVID. And six days later, she died of coronavirus. Wow. I had to say goodbye to my mother by mobile phone, virtual funeral, mobile phone, virtual celebration of life, you know, on the computer, on Zoom with my family from around the world celebrating her life. Very, very, very challenging time and very grateful time the same time. So I was experiencing gratitude and grief. And people are going, what do you mean gratitude and grief? Grief because I couldn't fly to my mother's side. Grief because I had to tell her I love you in so many ways by phone. Grief because I couldn't go to her funeral. Grief because I've had a very beautiful relationship with my mother. I spoke to her every day for 40 years, wow. no matter where I was in the world. Wow. Gratitude because she had some underlying conditions. She had smoked two packs of cigarettes a day until she forgot to smoke. She um, wasn't healthy, had heart issues, had lung issues, had pulmonary issues, had issues. 
but still alive and still able to talk and still able to love and still able to converse and answer questions. So gratitude that she didn't suffer. Gratitude that she went peacefully and fast. Gratitude that, you know, we got to say goodbye to her. Gratitude that I had such a wonderful mother. Wow. Gratitude and grief. I had to hold both at the same time. Can't have one without the other. And, um, and so we had to, you know, we were, I just chose, chose to be in appreciation, chose to be in a place of thank you. Well, my deepest condolences. Thank you, my friend. Where are you today? What are you working on today? Um, I'm in the legacy play in my life right now. So I started my company, myneurogym.com, to give people the um, resources and tools to strengthen their mindset and their emotional skills, which I believe are the two tools that when you have those, uh, you have more awareness, more focus, more confidence, more certainty, healthier self-image, self-worth, self-esteem. You have the ability to manage your fears of being embarrassed, ashamed, ridiculed, judged, or disappointed. And you have the ability to upgrade your knowledge and skills and put into action what you learn and develop the empowering habits. So all the work that I do now with uh, my team and the researchers and psychologists and neuroscientists is take the best research in the world and dissect it so that we can teach it to people so they realize, A, you're not your past. B, your future can be better. And then C, here's exactly how. Love it. Love it. Mr. John Asaroff, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. What a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us today on another episode of the Coming Clean Podcast. Make sure to join Peter and his next guest on a brand new episode as we continue changing and impacting lives across the world. Share this episode with a friend. Follow, subscribe, and leave a review. Go ahead and get it fast. Get a dash in my position. You and-